stamps.com, which you know helps you buy USPS labels. They own ShipStation. They own Shipping Easy. Any software that comes out that wow. helps manage this shipping category, they are the owners. And if you call them up and you're like, hey, I'm interested in the software, they're like, what else are you considering? And you're like, ah, I was considering Shipping Easy. They're like, well, that's our software too. So we're going to fuck. Now we're, thank you for telling us that we can fuck you. There's a big green light that says, yes, please fuck Moyes right here. And we're going to do that now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think it's a great acquisition. From a business perspective, I think they're probably going to make a fortune from this. From a consumer perspective or a customer perspective, I hate this. That's how you know it's a good private equity deal. This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. Nick, did you know that Tapcart apps have generated more than $5 billion in sales for Shopify's fastest growing brands? Everyone from Fashion Nova to Mudwater to our friend Ben at uh, True Classic Tees, uh, Tapcart is powering all of their apps. I didn't realize it was that big, but it does make sense. And I love the examples that you gave because those are, they're either high consumption or high consumable products, or it's apparel where I feel like there's a higher consideration funnel. It makes perfect sense to be using a mobile app in those cases. Yeah, Tapcart's mobile app has a 2.3x higher conversion rate versus the mobile web. And to learn more, go to tapcart.com slash limited. Okay, Nick, what are you up to? Oh man, I like that we just hit the record button and I have no idea what's coming next. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm in San Francisco. I'm here for a hot second for some personal stuff and it smells like taxes and homeless people outside. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think San Francisco (laughs) might be the biggest. San Francisco is the all bird stock of the United States (laughs) cities. (laughs) That's true in many ways. The problem is I I love San Francisco. It's the most beautiful. It's such a beautiful city. Like uh, every time I come here, I'm just stunned at how gorgeous it is. Like the bridges are amazing. The water's there. Weather's also the uh, the hustle in San Francisco, like the Silicon Valley DNA it's almost like a virus that you want to go there and catch and then take wherever else you go. I don't think you can take it wherever else you go. I think that once you've got it, like like as soon as you leave, you become immune to it. Like you need to be here in order to catch the SF virus. And I love that. All right. So I'm assuming you have a, a guess that business for me. I have a guess that business and a couple of okay. things. I have one for you as well. A guess that business. Okay. Yeah. It would be so funny if they were the same. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here's mine. Four hundred seventy million in revenue in twenty twenty two. Yeah. Okay. One hundred thirty million in cogs, and that's twenty eight percent of revenue. Okay. This is a brick and mortar store uh, business. Okay, so four hundred seventy million in revenue, one hundred thirty million in cogs. Labor is one hundred forty seven million. So labor is actually more than cost of goods sold. Wow. Q1 and Q4 are slow because it's cold out. 15% operating margins, uh, $137 million in operating costs total. Um, they lost $200 million. And there's 186 total stores, $2.9 million in sales per store per year, 6,000 employees. Okay, so immediately I'm thinking... Like a summary, di- either like, I don't think it's sporting goods because I don't think there's a lot of labor there, but I'm thinking like almost like a dip in dots, just given that there's a lot of labor and 2.9 million per store per year. That's about three well run coffee cafes equivalent of revenue. Yeah. Yeah. So 470 million total revenue, 186 stores, 36 new ones in 2022. Same store sales increase of 13% year over year, 6,000 employees. Dippin' Dots is not a bad uh, guess. I'm not sure if Dippin' Dots would have 6,000 employees. Uh, that seems yeah. like an insane number for Dippin' Dots. But, uh, you know, it's not Dippin' Dots. But ask me three questions. Okay. Is it a consumable product? The main product yes. you sell? Yes. Okay. Is it a food or a beverage? Yes and yes, but more, much more food, I would imagine. Like, I, I would be shocked if it wasn't 90-10. Like, 90% food, 10% death. 
The thing that's throwing me off is 6,000 employees because that means it's about a little over 30 employees per store. That's such a good... Uh, in fact, I was like hoping that you would do that math to be like, what kind of store would have this many employees? Yeah. Okay. What if we did... So, okay. Interesting. Average salary of 24,500. So... Yeah. A lot of the, the 6,000 are part-time workers. Yes. Yeah. I'm almost thinking like... Yeah, 32 is this list is this some like suburban buffet <laughs> golden corral is a golden yeah corral. boston no. market type thing it is not okay i'll give you more clues okay. there's 11 core signature items at every store okay 11 core signature items on the menu all the time at every store Mm-hmm. And five times, they call it seasonally, but five times a year, they rotate, they add some menu items. Okay, so it is a restaurant company, and 21% of all orders come through marketplace channels like DoorDash or Caviar. Wow, I'm so stumped. I'm thinking like Panda Express, but that's probably way too big. Panda Express is also, this is a publicly traded company, I didn't mention that, with a $1.1 billion market cap. Okay. And you, let me give you another example or another clue. I, I'm almost certain you've eaten there in the last 30 days. And it's not West Side Market. <laughs> <laughs> last 30 days. Wow. I'm so stumped. Okay. Ready for it? Okay. Yeah. I'm ready. Sweet Green. Wow. $1.1 billion market cap. 470 million in revenue last year, 186 stores, 20% of all orders come through DoorDash or Caviar. 11 that makes a lot of sense. Salads, five salads, the oh, like salad, you know, seasonal salads that rotate in and out five times a year. Custom salad is their most popular. 400 million raised at their IPO a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, uh, it's uh, sweet cream. Wow, I did not see that coming at all. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Hit me with yours. Okay. This one goes into a bit of like the first, uh, the first segment that I've got here, which is more of a PSA, but there's not a lot of information. So I'll give you a few fun ones. It's a direct to consumer brand. Okay. And they prioritize comfort mainly around temperature regulation and Things like making things stretchy and comfortable and, you know, like you can spend a lot of time in these clothings. They have uh, brick and mortar stores with, uh, I think their flagship one here in Soho. Every celebrity, you know, that's like an influencer celebrity nowadays, like Gwyneth Paltrow and Jessica Alba, they've all used this product. And the founder's dad founded shop.com. Founder's dad. Okay. Uh, let me ask. Oh, so it's, you talked about te- first. You gave me a lot of clues, so I appreciate how easy you're making it. Except I'm still stumped. Uh, so let me ask you a couple of questions. You mentioned temperature regulation. Is this an apparel company? Yes. Okay. Uh, it's direct to consumer. Is most are most of their sales done direct to consumer or through uh, brick and mortar stores? Direct to consumer. Okay, and it's about temperature regulation. It's not Arteza or like Aritzia, sorry, the one with the, um, it's like, you know, I would have guessed temperature, I, I'm sorry, you said it was apparel? It was apparel. It's not Jambies, although Jambies sounds like a good answer. Jambies would be a good answer here, but, uh, uh, but I don't I think they have a flagship dads. store in Soho. Yeah, that too. Okay, flagship, and how many stores do they have? Probably less than 10. Okay, and it's a it's a privately held company. Yeah, if you had to guess how much revenue it's doing, what would you guess? Well, at one point it was reported at twenty five, twenty five million in revenue. Yeah, my guess is probably closer to like sub sub twenty, maybe sub fifteen. Oh wow. Okay, so I got to guess a smaller brand. And what like you know the clothing is it women or men? Uh, it started women's. It's probably ninety five percent women. Oh. Bandier? Would I guess Bandier? Is it Bandier? No, that's close. Bandier is main. I think it's all women. Yeah. Okay. And then it's temperature regulation. Oh, oh, you know that girl? It's not a prey ski, is it? No, no. You want me to tell you? Yes, I give up. Okay. The brand is called Lunia. And the reason I wanted to bring it up is they were a brand 
like many others that are that are experiencing this right now, but they were a special case of a brand. So a friend of mine basically found it in the bankruptcy filings on Friday. So they filed for bankruptcy and after doing some more digging and some texting and some calling, the founding story is basically like this founder put 50K of her own personal savings, I think, into the brand to build this thing to do 25 million, every podcast, every conference, every magazine cover, everything of like, you got to follow exactly how this brand is doing it. They filed for bankruptcy. It turns out the family funded like tens of millions of dollars into trying to make this thing work. And it was just a disaster business the entire time. Really? So this founding story was that they'd only put in $50,000, but the reality is that they put in tens of millions of dollars to the family that started it. Correct. Who is the founder? Uh, Ashley, Ashley Merrill. Merrill. And uh, so I, I just Googled Ashley Merrill. And one of the first links that came up was this swanky Malibu house that was known as their second house when the kids got busy or the kids got wanted to play outside in the summer or something like that. It was just like so textbook. So the brand is now bankrupt. Is that right? Because I just Googled it and said this. Yeah, filed for bankruptcy. The person who um, told me about this said what they think will happen. And I don't know how bankruptcy works exactly. Maybe you, you probably do. But they said like they'll they'll basically get rid of the debts and then somehow continue to operate the business and try to build it out of bankruptcy. Yeah, bankruptcy can work in one of two ways. You can say, you know what? This business is just a bad business forever. And so we're done with this. And businesses like Toys R Us and Blockbuster are like, we're done with this. Don't ever talk to us again because there's no reason for this business to exist anymore. And yep. there's others like, what's a good example? Like G- General Motors that uh, declared bankruptcy some time ago, but they're like, look, we just can't afford this debt. We need to wipe out this debt and figure out a way to continue to move forward. Yeah. But it usually wipes out the shareholders. Um, that's interesting that that happened. You know, to be honest, um, look, I don't know any, I, I, I've heard of this business before. I've actually heard that it makes fantastic uh, pajamas. Yeah. I've never, are really good. you know, yeah, I've never uh, worn it. So I'm not sure. I will say that, you know, I, I don't know enough about the founder or enough about the business to be like, she, she made any, mis- like, obviously there were mistakes made, the business went bankrupt, but a lot of businesses are going bankrupt right now because Facebook advertising isn't working because, you know, it's just hard, like the economy isn't as good as it was two years ago. And so um, that's a really tough pill to chew on or to swallow, I guess. And I'm sad to hear that it went bankrupt. Uh, it's pretty crazy that the founding story was we put in 50K, although we actually put in $15 million. That's, right. That is bananas. Did you see, speaking of bankruptcy, that uh, Bed Bath & Beyond got an offer from Overstock.com for $21.5 million? I didn't see that. Wow. And that includes uh, no liabilities or include like uh, wipes away all liabilities? It says it's mainly for the intellectual property. From what I know, I think there's three different sales happening. One is for the for the real estate, maybe. One is for the inventory. And I think one is just the IP, like trying to build this thing back to be a marketplace online. Yeah. And I think that's what they're buying is basically the ability to take this and then build a new marketplace online. What happened to Ty Lopez? I thought he'd be buying the IP. Dude, that was my he... first thought too. <laughs> I was shocked. Where is he? Where is yeah, he? this is his job of a store. Is he done? Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah. Um, well, Overstock, like it makes sense for Overstock.com. I felt like Overstock and Bed Bath, or like it sounds like the way I think about Overstock.com and Bed Bath and Beyond, I would put them in the same bucket of like retailers selling merchandise where, you know, that's a home goods that's a little bit discounted, all that kind of stuff. I think at one point, Bed Bath and Beyond also was like the 10th biggest marketplace website in the country. Really? Yeah. Wow. Majority of their sales, I think, came e-commerce. I saw that store, like on um, you know, on Fifth Avenue or Sixth Avenue in New York City, had like uh, store closing uh, banners up, and it also had like uh, banners that said fixtures for sale. <laughs> Come by our cash register. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, like sounds hilarious, but believe it or not, when we were when my dad purchased his first couple gas stations, we were looking for shelving yeah. um, to put in those gas stations. And basically, there was a, a pharmacy called Eckerd, which ended up becoming like CVS. I think it ended up becoming CVS or was purchased by CVS that was going out of business. And we bought all of the shelving out of this Eckerd uh, you know, pharmacy that we put in our gas station, except the Eckerd pharmacy was like 
I don't know, 18,000 square feet and our gas station was 2,000 square feet. So we yeah. had all of this extra shell because my dad was like, this is so cheap. They're selling it for five cents on the dollar. I'll take all of it. Yeah, yeah. You see the one guy that bought the fast sign from their office? Oh, really? No, I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. I, they they like, did the same thing. Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. Twitter was also selling a bunch of their like, you know, logos and like when Elon yeah. Musk was like, we don't need all this office space, we don't need all this fancy stuff. They were selling a bunch of uh, like amazing products on the internet. My father bought all of the all of the shelving. Like he probably bought 14 sunglass stands for a convenience store that needs one and so <laughs> for 15 years we had 13 sunglass shelves that were just collecting dust and it was still a good deal yeah, yeah it was still probably <laughs> a good deal in fact when ba- i saw bed bath and beyond clothing closing and i saw the sign that said a uh, shelving for sale i texted it to my father and i was like hey are you interested in any shelving he's like not anymore i'm done <laughs> Okay, I, I wanted to talk about another bankruptcy actually as well. Any, wait, awesome. do you have any more information on how what happened to these guys? So like, why did they go bankrupt? You know, the family put in tens of millions of dollars. Why did they stop putting it? No, I haven't yet. I I think, uh, I don't know if I can download the docs. I think I can if I pay for it. I'll read through it and then uh, next episode I'll come back with it. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, there's no posts like on their Instagram account or anything saying, no hey, see they're slow. To- yeah, exactly. Okay, this other brand does have some press. It's called the Pill Club. Uh, oh, no way. Yeah, we worked with them. Oh, you did work with them? What did you guys do for them? We were doing like uh, helping them acquire customers with by whitelisting creators, influencers. And how did that go? It went really well. Are they fully shutting down? Because there's some good stuff that they were doing that I could talk about if they're shutting down. I think it's even worse than that. Uh, oh, so let me tell you a little bit okay, about yeah. what happened. So the pill club is basically, um, imagine birth control pill delivered. Uh, is that right? Like, is that what yep. you guys were selling? Birth control pill delivered. Launched in 2016 in California. They had raised more than $100 million. I'm pretty sure they raised $51 million in 2019 from VMG Partners, uh, $42 million in June 2021, and like some money before the $51 million in January 2019. So I'm pretty sure they ended up raising more than $100 million. They were actually charged with Medicaid fraud. What? They settled and went bankrupt. Whoa, wait, can you explain that? What was the fraud? Yeah, uh, this is this is an article I read. According to the California Department of Justice, the company billed Medi-Cal, so I guess maybe not Medicaid fraud, Medi-Cal fraud. Uh, the company billed Medi-Cal for services it never provided, allegedly submitting claims for 30-minute face-to-face counseling sessions with its nurse practitioners, when it didn't have any direct or real-time contact with patients. Wow. Oh, wow. So Medicaid fraud, Medi-Cal fraud. So when we worked with them, I used to think this is like, uh, in fact, this business is what got me so excited about TrueMed because I thought, okay, this is amazing. You can basically, so the pill club, the way they do it, they advertise, hey, we, we have free birth control. You, you need birth control. We're going to send it to you. We're not even going to just send it to you. We're going to send it to you in a box. It's going to have chocolates, lollipops, stickers, whatever, every month on time without fail. And you just give us your insurance and it's free. And basically you would, you know, it was a two-part funnel. The part one was like, get somebody to basically become a lead. So somebody comes to the site, says they're interested, submits their information, and and then it goes through a verification process. And then if they're approved... Then there's a second funnel, which is like, okay, now they're approved. Now we need to actually get them through uh, the second funnel, which is like, get them to be a customer. And about 25% of those people who would come through the first would get through the second. And I always thought it was so fascinating because I thought this is the greatest business in the world. You advertise something for free. You know, let's say it costs, uh, you know, you can, uh, birth control costs like 20 bucks to send out. You can charge the insurance company 50. And you basically profit 30 and it's like your CAC is so low because you're selling something for free. I always thought it was like this magical business, but it sounds like they were just adding things as new line items. I think that regulatory process is way harder than uh, we imagine of like making sure that, you know, you can get medic- your, your insurance company to approve and pay for yeah. this thing. It's probably easier with the, the birth control pill, but I also imagine the margin, there isn't a huge amount of margin on birth control pill because I don't think you can go to Medicare or an insurance company and say, 
give me $50 for birth control because birth control has been around for so long. It's so generic at this point that I think I would imagine it's way cheaper. Like with Ozempic, I met, you know how we talked a while ago about Roman or Roe rather doing Ozempic prescriptions. I imagine the hoops that Roe or the consumer has to jump through in order to get insurance to pay for Ozempic are numerous and like difficult. Like I don't think it's just okay. I signed up for Ozempic. Um, hey, insurance, come pay Ozempic and give us give Roe two thousand dollars a month. I bet it's way right. harder for Roe to get paid for that kind of stuff. But yeah, these guys were just charging for things that didn't happen. So what happened is uh, they they settled with uh, California authorities for $18.3 million. And then the assets of the business were actually sold. So the assets of the pill club were sold. Any idea, any, any guess as to who bought them? Who would buy the assets of a company selling prescription goods? Yeah, it would have to be one of the, the hymns, hers, Roman, keeps, one of those. That's right. It's the third one of those. It's Keeps. Uh, nice. 30, 30 Madison. Madison scooped up the assets, including 100,000 patient files and the IP from the Pill Club for $32 million. Wow. What's a little bit scary is that you can scoop up the assets of a medical company like this that has gone through bankruptcy for $30 million. There's 100,000 patient files. You know, and now, like, you know, look, I'm not, I don't know anything. 30 Madison seems like a completely great company, and I have no reason to think that they're not wonderful. Yeah. Like, you know, I know that they do, they're HIPAA compliant and they handle medical records already. It just seems a little scary that my patient uh, file could have been with the pill club, although I'm not on birth control personally, but, and now somebody else scooped it up. That seems a little bit weird to me. I wonder if there are like uh, certain practices you have to go through to do an acquisition for something that is HIPAA, uh, you know, like considered HIPAA. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm not sure about that. But look, you know, these guys, I don't know, uh, like, you know, they got the IP of the pill club and, you know, 100,000 patient files. If you assume the IP was worth nothing, the 100,000 patient files cost them $320 per patient. That's a, that's a large CAC. But I bet with the entire portfolio they have, they'll probably make it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does 30 Madison, can they manufacture their own pills or are these businesses mostly like they they partner up with a pharmacy or like they just have to buy it from another pharmacy? Most, I'm not exactly sure about 30 Madison, but most of these businesses are not. We manufacture our own uh, medicines. Like yeah. most of them are like, look, like, you know, there's some guy manufacturing prescription Propecia and, prescri- and I'm sorry, generic Propecia and generic Viagra at massive scale, right? For CVS and Walgreens and uh, everybody. And so I would imagine they partner with them. I, I, like, you know, if I were if I were starting 30 Madison or like, you know, if I was running 30 Madison, I would be like, why would I spend the resources it takes to manufacture millions of pills? Like, you know how hard that must be? Yeah, how careful totally. you have to be about that? I would imagine most of them use like a pharmacy as a service uh, product in order to actually ship you the goods. Yeah, it's a good point. I'm surprised that like this didn't receive a lot of press. I thought it was really interesting for two reasons. One, it was a direct-to-consumer company that had raised a hundred million dollars that was like committing some sort of Medi-Cal fraud. This isn't like the hey, I didn't pay sales tax, which is like something that everyone sort of unintentionally gets tripped up by a little bit. This is a hey, we're billing for things that didn't exist, that didn't happen, like thirty minutes of face-to-face time. So I thought that was really interesting. Like, and then they settled for eighteen million dollars, and sort of everything was okay. Like it wasn't like, you know, I didn't hear of any criminal charges or I didn't read anything to that effect. It was like we settled for this fraud and it's all it's all over. And the other interesting thing was this was a direct to consumer uh, company buying another direct to consumers company's assets out of bankruptcy for not like a nominal amount of money, you know, 30 million dollars, like real money, these a good amount of money. money. And so I thought, like, you know, this doesn't happen a lot. This happens once in a while, but I think it is really interesting. And I, I think this will happen more and more as we see these direct-to-consumer businesses fail. Like, if you're a sleep company, like, does Jambies want to buy Lunia? Um, right. I'm not sure if, like, I'm not sure if it's a good uh, purchase for them or a bad purchase from them. I'd be shocked if they had the cash to, you know, to spend $30 million, but could they come up with $300,000 to buy Lunia? Is that enough to take over the company? Maybe. And I feel like we might see more and more of this type of consolidation through bankruptcy that we have not seen in the past. It's similar to, like, how Nestle was buying... Uh vital proteins and or gain at the same time. It's like, you know, they have the factory to make one and might as well just buy up everybody else there where they can just plug right in and plug up, plug in on shelf too. 
Yeah. And like for Jambies, they're sort of like, look, we already have customers for this product. We might be able to cross sell with our email list with Jambies and Lunia. Certainly with 30 Madison and the Pill Club, they can do that. I'm not sure when it'll always make sense, but in certain instances, it seems like it would make a lot of sense. But I do think that we're going to see a lot more of this, and I'm excited to see a lot more of this. Like this type of consolidation should happen. There have been brands that have been VC funded or possibly, I guess, family funded when it comes to Lutia. So it makes sense that like those businesses that were not operating in a disciplined way go the way of the dinosaur and people who were more disciplined start picking them up. I saw on Twitter someone saying this. I think I'm not sure if it was about bed sheets or comforters or mattresses or something in the bedding category. I saw some guy on Twitter being like, you know, when we were running our business, all of these other direct consumer brands seem to be growing so quickly. And we're like, what the fuck are we doing? We don't understand how to run ads. And then like now they're like, we see all these brands suffering and possibly going bankrupt. And we're thinking about buying them. And we realize we were disciplined when they were not. Yeah, that was uh, that was Denver Rayburn. And what category was that? You saw that? That was betting. Yeah, he has a, a business called Luma Home, which is like a betting business. And uh, I think like the first two or three years, he just felt like he was trying to make everything work and he would see, oh, this agency is the agency to work with. He work with them. Uh, nothing happens. Switch agencies. You know, go. Somebody tells him or so, hears at a conference, he's got to be doing this. He jumps in there. doesn't work. And it was mainly because he was just very disciplined about like, you know, making sure he doesn't overspend or you know, like when you run your first test on a channel, you don't want to spend $100,000 and 50 of that goes into creative or running a $40,000 photo shoot. And so he was very cautious of that. He's kind of like a bootstrap dude too. His point of view was like, I thought we were basically failing for the first three years. Like we yeah. weren't hitting these yeah. ridiculous numbers that everybody would hit and go talk about. But uh, it turns out we were actually just really financially strict about where we would, you know, spend our money and how we would make our money. Is this website lumasleep.com? Is that what it is? Lumahome.com. L-U-M-A home. L-O-O-M-A. Oh, gotcha. Their site's not that great, but their product is really, really good. Okay, you sleep in it? Yeah, highly recommend. Nick, you know what I really love about TapCart is you can constantly update your mobile app to reflect the season or environment that your site is in. So if you're running like a Black Friday sale and you have like a new hero image, super easy to do that in the app. It's not like a static thing where you load it once and it never changes again. You're launching new products, you're doing a July 4th sale, you can update the header really easily. You can update the look of the site to reflect the sale that you're doing. It's Black Friday, you wanna make a big splash. You can do that all in the TapCard app and they make it really easy for you to be able to update your app without a bunch of like headache and a bunch of getting your CTO involved or something to that effect. It's all self-serve. It's really fast. And I love that about them. Yeah. The other thing is pairing that with the discovery piece. I feel like one of the biggest things that happens during any sale is actually the the lack of awareness about a sale or the, the lack of discovery by custom, their own customers that a sale is going on. And so using TapCart to one, have real estate on somebody's uh, home screen, but also two, have the push notification capability, that plus being able to merchandise your app around a sale, I think creates for a powerful promo experience. Pretty amazing. And to learn more, go to tapcart.com slash limited. Let me uh, switch gears and talk about something else. Uh, one is, did you see the Apple Vision Pro get launched? Like, yeah. Have you seen that thing? Looks yeah. insane. You know, the more, the more like uh, I went to go to the US Open this past weekend and as I was there, I know nothing about golf. I'm like, who is this guy? Is he about to hit a field goal? But if I had those, <laughs> you know, if I had those vision goggles, I'd know everything about the player. And uh, that's when I was like, this could be pretty useful, especially for, for um, you know, even thinking about the Apple Vision Pro in school. I think that would be insane. I cannot wait for it to come out because like, you know, I travel a bunch and I, I now own a second monitor that I travel with and can like plug into my- Did you get that espresso one? I got some second monitor from Amazon that's like portable, nice. uh, which okay, is nice. helpful. I would love that Apple Vision Pro and I'm like, great, I can now look at a 40-inch screen without carrying around a 40-inch screen. I checked into this hotel that I'm at right now and there was some Indian dude downstairs checking in with a second monitor. Like he, he had brought a second monitor on the airplane, like it had the yeah. Airlines tag on it. And I was like, only in San Francisco, our motherfucker. 
Like these guys are traveling with second monitors, like it's no tomorrow in San yeah. Francisco. Uh, for, so I, I love these guys. I love San Francisco. I love that type of energy. I wonder what type of revolution this will exist. Like the Apple Vision Pro will create for things like second monitors. What yeah, are the things that they announced during, you know, whatever that Mac meetup was or whatever it's called. WWDC. I, yeah, yeah, it was iOS seventeen. And yep. uh, I'm not sure if you saw this. iOS 17 automatically removes tracking parameters from links you click on. Basically, they're going to kill the UTF parameter. Yep. I did see, did this. see this. Yeah, this is one of the things that uh, I was going to bring up. It basically, it's called their private click measurement, which uh, basically what they said is we're going to add this and it's going to enable more privacy-friendly tracking trying to position it as as being friendly to small businesses, but it's not that great. I think you basically get one UTM parameter to go with you. And, you know, before you could have campaign and channel and medium and all these things. And I think now you basically get one. You get one. Okay. So basically one campaign, uh, I'm sorry, one UTM parameter will go with you from someone clicking an ad onto your website. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I could be completely wrong though. My first thought was, okay, if they're if they're getting mad about the tracking, why not just make individual URLs that then redirect after somebody lands or redirects in a way where you know, let's say you let you click uh let's say I'm selling uh, I don't know, native. It's like native.com/product/deodorant question mark utm source equals whatever. That whole thing instead if they're only letting me track one thing or or not track anything, why not just have like add one dot native dot com? Somebody goes there, it's like either uh it, you know the second they get there, then it redirects and it registers on the site of where it came from and allows you to track it back. I'd imagine that's, that's something probably that like Triple Whale is about to come out with to counter this. Yeah. So so one the, the thing I thought about when I read this was one, uh, this is gonna hurt a lot of people's tracking ability when it comes to advertising, obviously. And like especially Facebook, right? Because like right now on Facebook, like you might use the Facebook ad manager to track sales, and then you probably use UTM parameters to also give you a barometer of like how are my Facebook ads doing. If right. all of those UTM parameters are stripped away, you're sort of left to ad manager, which in and of itself is like a little bit less, it's certainly less reliable than it was several years ago. Um, and so it makes things a little bit scary. You know, I didn't understand how this was going to work. Like uh, right now, Facebook, if you click an ad, it opens up a browser inside the Facebook app. That browser is actually powered by Safari. Like, in, like if you're inside Facebook, you click an ad and it opens up a browser. You don't leave Facebook, you stay inside Facebook, but that uh, browser is Safari. And like, I think Apple requires you to use their browser, those types of in-app clicks. You know, does that mean that Facebook won't be able to like control that browser at all, even from a UTM parameter? Does that mean that, you know, Apple will say once like uh, what, uh, what used to happen before uh, in like 2015, when I started native, if you clicked an ad on Facebook, it wouldn't open up a browser inside Facebook. It would actually take you to the Safari app and open it up in Safari, open up your ad in Safari, which was way better because what would happen, like it's way harder to go back to the Facebook app than it is right now, where what if you open it up inside the Facebook app, you can accidentally go back to Facebook as opposed to staying in the browser and looking at like my ad or like, you know, my creative or like, you know, my landing page. And so I'm not sure how this will work. I'm not sure if like Apple will say no more in-app browsers. I don't think it'll say that. I think it'll be inside Facebook. No, I thought it was no UTM parameters, in which case I was like, fuck, we're all fucked yet. If there's one UTM parameter, you can sort of shove everything in one UTM parameter. You can shove your Facebook campaign name, your ad set, and your creative inside that one UTM parameter and still use it. I think Apple is going to say no UTM parameters. If they're saying one right now, I feel like at some point they will say none. I'm curious to see how this evolves. Somebody's got to come up with a tool that somehow like hacks this together. There's got to be a way. It's scary stuff from the part of an advertiser. Like Apple, everything Apple does when they're like, here, this is better for privacy for users. Every Straight time they line. touch it. You know what I want to make sure is that my, the advertiser doesn't get UTM parameters. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't think they care that much. Unless you're Ted Cruz. Yeah, unless, yeah, unless you're te <laughs> Ted Cruz. Um, anyway, I thought this was really crazy. It doesn't launch until like we, uh, you know, it doesn't happen until iOS 17, and I'm not sure when that's actually being released. It might be next year, frankly, or like with a new iPhone. So in a few, uh, at least several months. 
Uh, but it is something to keep your eye out on. And I'm sure the people at Triple Whale and North Beam are going to start looking at this. I wonder when um, Apple is going to make a bigger push, especially around CPG for their own ad platform. Remember we talked about how they were like yeah. building out their DMP and their DSP. I mean, all of this sort of is pushing the advertisers to be like, okay, well, you know, what do you got for us? Yeah, I don't know when they'll do that. I'm sure at one point that will happen. Like, you know, that, that actually, I, I, I'm not sure that'll happen. Like, I think it will happen. It feels like that. That's what's happening. They're sort of consult. They're removing the ability of anyone else to do anything, and then they'll own yeah. the space. But the reality is also once. Somebody asked Tim Cook, what would you do if you were Mark Zuckerberg and like you kept doing this, like, you know, that you kept losing the ability to track people and monetize them? For, and he's like, I would never be in his position. I would just wouldn't run a business that was run uh, based on like ads. And, yeah. so, and like even today, Apple famously does not spend a dollar on advertising on Facebook or Instagram. And yet they spent like they're the number one advertiser. They're one of the top five advertisers, I think, on Twitter. Yeah, I get their Twitter ads a lot. And TikTok. Yeah. It, it's surprising to like, you know, they're like, we will only advertise on Twitter. We will not advertise on Facebook or Instagram. I read that once in the Wall Street Journal and I was pretty surprised to hear that. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. I got something. Okay. I'll let you choose. One person on Twitter asked if we could talk about the marketing org, ideal marketing org that we've seen at different companies for a brand between 25 and 50 million. So that's one idea. One person asked us to talk about the conferences that we enjoy going to and why. And I also have a little um, a couple of notes on how I try to get the most out of a conference. And then the third one is how to use ChatGPT to build a short form content to paid media flywheel. Let's do number one. Number two, I'll give a short answer, uh, which is the, no, my short answer for number two, which is like, what conferences do you enjoy? I rarely enjoy the content at conferences. I always enjoy the conversations I have with the founders off stage. It's almost like, you know, um, I hear all like on like when I watch Meet the Press or on these Sunday news talk shows, they're like, look, if you talk to Republicans or Democrats when they're not on C-SPAN and they're not questioning the defense secretary, they'll be like, we think that they're doing a wonderful job when they're in front of the camera. They always say something entirely different. And so you don't want that. Like, um, there was this great uh, in Barack Obama's biography. He's like uh, or autobiography. He's like Bobby Jindal, who was the governor of Louisiana. This Indian guy. He's like he would always be really nice and ask for help, and then he'd go in front of cameras and be like, "Fuck Barack Obama," and he's like, <laughs> "What the fuck is wrong with this guy?" And yeah. I feel like that's often what happens at conferences. So anyway, that's my short answer for number two. Tell me about number one. What do you think about marketing works? Okay, so for number one, I broke it down into three buckets. So basically, like. Zero to five, five to 25, and 25 to 50. With zero to five, I think you basically need max two people. You need somebody who's strong on the brand side, and you actually probably don't even need two. You could do this with just one. Uh, You have somebody who's strong on the brand side, oversees everything from press releases, influencer, seeding, building relationships with creators, relationships with editors, packaging, design. And then you have a kind of a generalist, but more like a Swiss army knife, head of growth type person who really is pulling the strings to the different puppets, the puppets being your paid media agency, you know, where you're getting creative from, who's controlling, you know, how's your site getting better, site development and email. And I think those two will get you to the first five. Yeah. I think first five is one or two people as well. Uh, And I think it's like, you know, I think it, it, it's probably at a time where you're testing a bunch of marketing channels. And so you don't need, like, you're trying to find out where you're going to, where you're going to put your chips in, right? Like when you're zero to five, it's like walking into a casino. You're not sure what game you're going to play. Are you going to play the Facebook game, the Google game, the TikTok game, the YouTube game? And so you may want to put a little bit of chips everywhere to find out what you're good at before you start putting more chips in and being like, actually, I'm pretty good at blackjack. So let me do it. Totally. Then the five to 25, I think you keep the brand person. I think the head of growth person actually splits into two roles. And prob- this the specific person probably goes more toward becoming a performance marketer. I think you can add an e-commerce manager, somebody who oversees everything on the site, product launches, merchandising, optimization, et cetera. And then somebody for content and social media. So basically four people. And this is five to 25? Five to 25. I would go from zero to five. I would actually make that range probably zero to 12 and put this range like 
somewhere around 12 to 25. Like if yeah, you're I was thinking $10 like dollars, yeah, if you're $10 million, you do not need four people. If you're $20 million, I can see where you're like, hey, we need to start expanding our marketing team. Uh, we probably need someone looking at emails consistently and helping us create emails. We probably need someone, or maybe an e-commerce manager. We probably need a performance marketer channel, a performance marketer, because we now we're at that casino and we realize we're really good at the game. We can put more chips down on the table for one thing. So yeah, I would agree with that. I would just move the barometer or like move the range up a little bit. Cool. Then on the 25 to 50, at that stage of a company, I would imagine that you know there's some probably institutional capital. And so you'll probably need maybe a VP of marketing or an SVP, probably mainly for optics, less of like actually doing the work. Then I think you have, a, <laughs> then I think you have like a, you still have your performance marketer. Um, you still have your brand marketer. I think you can add somebody for retention, basically retention customer experience. And then I think you should actually try to bring in house like a couple of video editors, uh, because I think one of the costliest things as you're scaling is probably creative production and paying for content. And I think the more you can find, you know, the flips of the switches where the agency fees become better spent internally versus externally, which is usually starts to happen around this stage then the more you know the better savings you have but also you should still keep some of the other stuff farmed out like there's a few things i think you don't need to bring in at that stage whether it's pr or website development or you know ui design things of that nature that are less frequent still important but you know somebody like a video editor you could be using them every day all day you know there's never they're never going to have nothing to do i think the hard part is you got to think about how you're marketing. And today you're probably right. It's mostly, it's a lot of video editing and you need to bring that in-house. You know, back in like 2017, there were a lot of people doing podcast ads and making their businesses huge as a result of that. Like I think Neyundis grew on podcast ads. I remember um, I talked to the founder of Movement Watches back in the, uh, like, you know, five years ago. And he's like, we're putting a big bet into podcast ads. And so I think in those instances, you might not be like, I need a couple of video editors. I, I think that's the hard part of with this question, which is wherever you've sat down at that casino, you need to build your marketing team for that and not anything else. And some people mm -hmm. like, you know, like uh, Mini Katana. Yeah, he needs 10 video editors, right. zero performance marketers. And Jones Road Beauty probably needs four video editors and, uh, so, and like, you know, four performance marketers. And so I do think that there is like a little bit of variance depending on how where you've sat down at the casino. Yeah, I fully agree, actually. I think, um, you know, like if you're a, a hint water too, you might be adding like e-retail, you know, head of e-retail, yeah. different analysts for that. Uh, so yeah, I fully agree. I yeah. guess the tough to answer for this guy on Twitter, but somewhere around this is probably right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the best generic answer you're going to get without being like, this is the business. I spent 70% on YouTube ads, 10% on TikTok, 10% on something else. And then you can like, craft a better answer for that. Um, okay. I want to chat about one of what I think is the best private equity acquisitions in the direct-to-consumer industry, and that is Stamps.com. Stamps.com was actually purchased about two years ago by uh, a private equity firm called Tama Bravo. They purchased it for $6.6 .6 billion. I remember this happening because... Um, Stamp Par and I had just talked about stamps.com and I was like, you know, I think stamps.com is super undervalued. And the stock went up like 40% a couple of days later. And I remember being like, oh, Sam, see, look, we were right about this. Now we can't buy the stock. And then it went up like 100% again when this private equity firm took over the company. And the reason was it was charging so little for its SaaS software that uh, it made sense for a private equity acquisition. Like, you know, you could be Athletic Greens and shipping out hundreds of millions of dollars of product through ShipStation. And I'm not saying uh, Athletic Greens is, I've got no idea that they are, but you could be doing that through ShipStation and be paying like $30 a month. Like it wow. was so cheap. Native used ShipStation for a really long time. And we probably paid $200 a month that we were doing $70 million a year. And we we're paying, like it was, you know, like Clavio sort of goes up naturally with more emails that you sent. Every, like, you know, Help Scout, Gorgeous, everybody starts charging more the bigger you get. Triple Will does the same thing. ShipStation really didn't do that in a way that was really pleasant. They are now, like these private equity guys are now insane. Whatever was beautiful about ShipStation and Stamps.com <laughs> is sort of like they've 
Yeah, exactly. They've taken a knife. To, they have not made the, the experience where you're like- They Vista partnered it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what they did, where you're like, oh, you shipped out one more package that we agreed to. We're going to call you up and kill you. <laughs> you know, you're just like, fuck. And you know, yeah. they've done a good job of consolidating the space. They they own stamps.com, which you know helps you buy USPS labels. They own ShipStation. They own Shipping Easy. Any software that comes out that wow. helps manage this shipping category- they are the owners. And if you call them up and you're like, hey, I'm interested in the software, they're like, what else are you considering? And you're like, ah, I was considering shipping easy. They're like, well, that's our software too. So we're going to fuck. <laughs> now we're, thank you for telling us that we can fuck you. There's a big green light that says, yes, please fuck Moyes right here. And we're going to do that now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think it's a great acquisition from a business perspective. I think they're probably going to make a fortune from this. Yeah. Less whatever is happening in the direct consumer industry that's killing uh, direct consumer businesses. From a consumer perspective or a customer perspective, I hate this. That's how you know it's a good private equity deal. Sean and Ridge posted this. Uh, he saw native deodorant. He posted this on Twitter. He saw native deodorant for sale for like $18 at CVS or something. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Would you buy this for $18? And I was like, No. Like, you <laughs> yeah. know, there's, there is a point where I'm like, I'm not ready to do business with somebody because I feel icky working with them at $18 for deodorant. I think I would feel that way. And yeah. you know, days $18 in most places. It just was at this, some CVS or Walgreens. And I, I would say I wouldn't buy it from that location. Right. Um, at some point, like, you know, other so- software businesses, I'm like, I can't do business with you because I feel gross doing business with you. ShipStation isn't there yet, but I think it can easily get there for me. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Okay. There's two other things I, I like to chat about. Uh, let me give you uh, give them to you really quickly. There's this company called Bazooka Gum and Push Pops. Yeah, you know, like this is some guy owns Bazooka Gum and Push Pops. It's Tops, actually. I think uh, they the company sold Tops already for five hundred million dollars, which was the playing card company. They sold it to Fanatics. I'm pretty sure they bought Bazooka Gum and Push Pops for three hundred eighty five million dollars. They're trying to sell them now. In 2007, they're trying to sell the business now for seven hundred million. Uh, wow. I, I read this article. I thought it was interesting. There's 40 million push pops sold annually. And I thought that was- They own Ring Pop too. Yes, they own Ring Pop as well. Do you know That's Push Pops? Crazy. You know Push Pops? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've never had one, but I've seen them. Yeah, it's too young for you. In my generation, we were all eating Push Pops and Ring Pops yeah. at the time. Uh, you know, I proposed to women with Ring Pops. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, make shivs out of Push Pops uh, yeah. at school. One other business idea that I think might work, and I'm curious to hear your opinion about this, and it's basically a refillery. And the reason that I like, I imagine that next to any Whole Foods, someone should open up a shop. If you're if Whole Foods is in a strip mall or in some sort of mall, you should open up a shop and you should be like, look, you can come and fill up your shampoo and soap and conditioner and laundry detergent bottles here. We don't use any plastic. And it'll be cheaper than going elsewhere. So basically, I've got a huge vat. I've got 500 gallons of liquid laundry detergent. You come over here and fill up your laundry detergent jug, your SUV of laundry detergents with my product. And you don't have to re like, you know, we save plastic, which is great for the environment. Yeah. And I give you a deal because you're bringing your own component. I'm buy- I'm selling it a 500 million gallon, uh, I'm sorry, 500 gallon jug. And I'm next to Whole Foods. So you probably care about this already. That's a great idea. These businesses do exist. I went to one in Los Angeles. It was in the yeah. middle of nowhere. It was a t- like, you know, I was like, look, you guys are, I had to drive an hour to get to it. And I was like, this is fucking, <laughs> yeah. you know, why did you guys put it in the middle of nowhere? Yeah. Why did you you should have yelled advocating? at them about all the emissions that you put out in the earth just to get there to refill. You know, everywhere where there's an air one, there should be one of these. Like imagine, yeah, and look, right. I think it could be even like a fun thing where you're like, you you know, like um, when we're kids, you'd go to the soda pop machines and you're like, I want a little bit of Fanta, a little bit of Pepsi, a little bit of like Sprite all mixed in. Imagine you could like mix your own scent in. Here's laundry detergent. That would be add dope. these essential oils, make your own scent. You know, we charge you based on like the volume of ounces you've got of laundry detergent. Hand right. soap, same thing. Bring in your hand soap glass jars. You know, refill them over here. It'll be really fun. A great experience. Can be a date. You, have you done any math on this? Any idea what the margins could be? I have not done any math on this. That is a great question. My first thought is you would you would have to compete with the P&G level of margins. To get that Walmart customer or that Costco customer to come here, which is really probably how you hit the scale, you would have to compete with the 
the tides of the world. Yeah, you're right. I'm not sure if you could compete with those guys. I think there there is a little bit of benefit because you don't have the plastic part of it. So hopefully that yeah. saves you money. And you have far fewer skews. You don't have to ship it. And you don't have to ship it. I think the hard part is that you're right. It's probably a niche customer. And I'm not sure if it fits. Like, I don't think it fits next to every Albertsons or Kroger or even yeah. Costco. Because I think those customers may be more price conscious. I think it definitely fits next to every Erwan and possibly every um, Whole Foods. Somebody should make this like um, almost like a vending machine type dispenser outside of Erwan and just test it, see if it works. Yeah, that would be even better because you could reduce all that labor, like bring in your yeah. bottle, tell us how many ounces it is, put it under here, hit what scent you want, we mix it up. Like, you know, the uh, in San Francisco, they have that Cafe X, which is like yeah, a machine. Coffee. Like the, yeah, yeah. They, the hand goes like this to wave to you. Yeah, um, like that for refilling your soap supplies. I wonder if that, that would be cool. Uh, I always, I think that's a great idea. I would love to consume less plastic, and that's a way that I would do it. I tried to do it in LA. I traveled an hour and a half to fill up these bottles. Wow, like, you went all the way. Yeah, I, I mean, I like the idea. I wanted to conserve plastic, and I was like, let me see what this is like, and whether yeah. this is a good business. And I think it can be a good business for the right person to put in the right spot to make it exciting to make it beautiful to make it instagram worthy to when you walk in you're like this is how much plastic i save this is how much plastic i save per year can you get shampoo and conditioner and hand soap and uh you know deodorant and laundry detergent and floor cleaner and multi-purpose cleaner it's almost like blue land meets uh like a brick retail store yeah, yeah exactly Anyway, that's a business idea. I'm not sure if it has any legs. I like the idea, though. I have no idea if it would work. I wish it yeah. exist in a way that was successful. I wish Whole Foods would actually put it... Like, Whole Foods sells nuts. Yeah, they if, should just like, put it in there. Yeah, Whole Foods should create their own fountain drink machine for filling up your laundry detergent. Agreed. Um, okay, I think that's a wrap for... This is episode 10. So we don't have close. a lot of... Yeah, we don't have a lot left in this season. I'm excited to answer that. I, I'm excited to get your opinion on uh, your favorite types of events uh, at our next, our, our next podcast. Awesome. All right. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss the next one.